Hallelujah. You're great in all the earth, God. Good morning, church. Please join me for the reading of God's word. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Aharis's provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Barshantha, Dolphin, Aspatha, Poratha, Aldelia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisa, Arida, and Vesatha. They killed these 10 sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, in the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. Esther answered, if it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law. And may the bodies of Haman's ten sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done so as a law was announced in Susa. And they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the 13th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa. But they did not cease any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not cease any plunder. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. 26 through 28. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word Pur, because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them. The Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and they're celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. Amen. You may be seated. Um, let's go ahead and go before the Lord. Um, right now... Uh, what I want to do is give you an opportunity to proclaim why God is great, why God has been great to you. And so with a loud voice, 
you're free. Um, in one sentence prayers, to say, God, you are great because, God, you have been great to me this week because I want to give you an opportunity to praise the Lord um, with us. So with one sentence prayer, you are free to just praise God. God, you are great because. Amen. 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 Yes. 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 Amen. God, all of these voices proclaim right now of your greatness. You are the great king who sits on your throne and nothing can move you. You are the great king who sits on a throne, who reign with all power and all sovereignty. There's nothing that goes on in our lives in this world that you are not involved in and that you do not have the power to intervene and to change things around. God, you are great because we've seen your power in the resurrection of Christ, that there's nothing that can hold you down. God, we see your greatness, that you rescued us from the, the grave that we are in, and you have given us a new life. God, you are great even right now. When we don't see it, you are at work. And so right now we proclaim that you are a good God. And for those who are here today who probably don't know or are not experiencing this great God that you are, Father, I want to pray for them. Father, I want to pray for the man who came in today who expressed that he wanted to commit suicide. Oh, God, I just ask that you would fight for him. God, I ask that you would help him to see that you are for him and not against him. And God, that you love him so much that you came from that, 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 that royal kingdom, from the throne in heaven to be in the midst of his problems, to understand his struggles, but then to die on the cross to set him free from what's holding them, his bondage, and to give him a new life, to walk in victory. And so I pray for him. I pray if he's still here, he would know that you are 
the powerful God who is willing to fight his battles and that he's not alone. And for any one of us right now who may be struggling with anything, God, I pray that today would be the day that we just lay it down before you and believe and walk away by faith knowing that you will fight for us. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you for all of us who are walking in victory. Thank you for sustaining us. Thank you for your grace over our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, as we continue to pray for the many things that we see happening around the world, the crisis in Gaza, for both Israel and Palestine, for both the believers in Israel and Palestine, for all those who are vulnerable and who are being affected by all this chaos, protect them. God, give wisdom to leaders to know how to bring a resolution to this. For both the believers in Israel and in Palestine, Father, give them the boldness to proclaim peace, to proclaim your truth, to proclaim the gospel, to walk alongside of those who are broken, to be your hands and feet to people there. We believe that you are at work even when we don't understand, and we believe that you have a glorious plan. And so we want to pray to that end. So Father, be with me today as take time to speak your word. Holy Spirit, fill me. Give me the boldness and the power to speak your truth. Not just that, God, open our hearts so that we can receive the blessing that you have for us in this word. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Carly Lundy, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Um, I just want to welcome a couple people who are probably here in this room. Uh, we have uh, a couple people who are probably traveling from out of town who came to um, the conference, uh, uh, the My Boulevard conference this weekend. And so we just want to welcome you. Thank you for uh, taking the time to worship with us. Uh, but we also have uh, parents who are here uh, for Parents Weekend uh, for uh, 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 Georgia Tech, I believe. And so if you're a parent here um, visiting your children or your, your college students uh, um, here, and can, can, can you just raise your hand for a little bit? I don't want to embarrass you. I'm sorry. But we just want to celebrate. Yes. Um, man, we, we, we are grateful for your students, or we are grateful for your, your um, I don't want to call them kids. Uh, they're not kids because they're grown adults, but we are grateful for them. Um, we're grateful that they are partnering with us as we uh, serve our colleges and also our community. And so we want to do the best to disciple them, um, not in our ways, but we want to do our best to disciple them in God's word, and especially to come alongside of you who have been discipling them. So we want to make sure that you know that we're doing our best to carry on the work that you guys have started. And so thank you for them. Uh, so today um, we are in the book of Esther, Esther chapter nine, and we are pretty much two chapters away from finishing the series. And so 
in this series, um, one, uh, it's been very encouraging to me, and, um, and we've been uh, talking through it in our city groups, and it's been very encouraging, the discussions that we've been having in our city groups, so I hope it's been encouraging for you as well. And if you've missed any of these sermons, you can always go back online to listen to them on Spotify. And so in this series, we have been looking at the story of Esther, this young Jewish uh, woman who became queen in the Persian empire, and God used her in this powerful political position to save her people from annihilation. And so in the story, we've been talking about the providence of God, how God works behind the scenes, even when we don't understand or we see what he is doing. And so throughout this series, we have been talking about how God's name is never mentioned in this book, and God uh, remains silent. He remains silent in the background. But just because God is silent, and this is an encouragement I want you to hear, just because God is silent doesn't mean that he's not active in your life. Just because we don't see grand demonstration of his supernatural power doesn't mean that things are not working according to his plans right? Nothing in our lives happen without God's awareness. In fact, everything, every single thing in our lives will fall into place exactly how God planned for it to, right? And we see this especially in the story of Esther. Esther was used by God to preserve his promise. And that's the ultimate point of the story, a promise that God had made long ago to save the world through the Jewish people. Jesus, the Messiah, would come through the Jewish line to save humanity from a greater annihilation, a greater destruction that would be both spiritual and eternal. And so the Jewish people needed to be protected, needed to be preserved. So God used this woman, Esther, to intercede to fight, to save these people from this destruction, to preserve God's promise of redemption. Esther, this woman, was used by God. And I want to make sure that before the series is over, that we don't miss the fact that God used a woman. God used a woman to be one of the greatest heroes in biblical history. And God placed this woman in this position of power and authority, and she used her influence, her wisdom, her discernment, her faith, her courage, along with the support of her cousin Mordecai. But it was Esther who God used to play a significant role in his plans. And I say this because in God's plans, we see how women are not marginalized. And we see how women are not undervalued. In God's plans, we see how women, not just men, are used in powerful roles, powerful leadership roles, used in prophetic ways, used in political positions, used to have moral and spiritual influence. In God's plans, women are not overlooked. In our society, we see how women can sometimes be undervalued, overlooked, or marginalized, and we sometimes see this even in the church. 
But in God's kingdom, we have several examples of God using powerful women. Women like Deborah, women like Ruth, Rahab, Mary, Martha, Priscilla, and we see Esther. All these women, married, single, women with kids, women without kids, all God used in these leadership roles to advance his plan. And so because God celebrate women in the Bible, in leadership role, I think we should do that as well. But that's not my sermon today. (laughs) Esther chapter 9 is where I want to encourage us. Esther chapter 9, again, is a climactic chapter where we see the tension is boiling, right? We see some things are being confronted, and then some things are about to change. And the most significant change that we're about to see in this chapter is the shift of power. Because in the beginning of the book, we saw how the Jewish people were a group of people who were being oppressed under Haman's power. They were hated by Haman, and Haman was doing everything that he could to get rid of these people and to destroy them. Haman was the chief minister to the king of Persia. And so he convinced the king to write a decree to have all of the Jewish people executed. And this was about 30 to 50 million Jews in the Persian empire. And so Haman was given this power authorized by the king to carry out this plan. And this was an irreversible law that was written. Not even the king could change his mind. A date was set. All the Jews knew that there was an appointed day to die. And there was nothing they could do about it. Nothing they can do to avoid it. And now Esther, who was a Jew, she also knew her life was at risk. In chapter 2, we see in God's providence, Esther was placed in the palace, and she was chosen to be queen at the right time. In God's providence, Esther had favor with the king at the right time. And so after hearing about Haman's plan in chapter 5, Esther risked her life to intercede for her people, to identify with her people, to get help from the king. And so she goes before the king and confessed to the king that she was hiding her identity as a Jew. She identifies with her people that her life and her people's life was at risk because of Haman. And then we see in chapter 7, the king finds out about Haman's plan, trying to kill his wife and her people, and the king had Haman executed. And now there's the shift of power because Haman is dead. Now Esther has the support of the king and the backing of the king's kingdom, and the king now is not against her, but the king now is for her. And she is now under the protection of the king and under the protection of the king's kingdom. And her Jewish people are no longer being oppressed, afraid, or at risk of losing their life. They are now free. 
and they are now safe. But there's still one problem. There's still one problem. Haman's law is irreversible. The Jewish people still had other enemies. And these enemies were given the right to attack them. Now listen, although Haman was dead, although their greatest enemy was defeated, Haman still had followers. Haman still had supporters. Haman still had people who wanted to carry out his plans. There were still people who hated the Jews and wanted to get rid of them. These people had the right to attack the Jews, and it wouldn't be against the law because the king had authorized it. And so listen, the greatest enemy, their great enemy was dead, but there was still a battle to be fought. There was still a battle to be fought. Although the Jews were safe and secure, they still had to fight. They still had to fight. And this is what we see in chapter 8. The king issued this new law, giving the Jews the right to fight back. And now we have two laws working against each other in the kingdom. And this is the reality of the Christian life. We have two laws working against each other, right? And this is what I want to encourage us with today. Listen, Jesus has conquered our great enemy. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered sin and death. He's conquered the grave on the cross. If you are a Christian, that is the truth and the reality that we stand on. Jesus has conquered and secured our victory and our safety. If you're not a Christian, you are not safe. You still have a great enemy after your soul. Right? Who's planning for your destruction. And there's an appointed day for you to die and you can't avoid it. But you can have safety. You can be safe and secure under the protection of the king and his kingdom if you accept Jesus. But here's the thing. There's another reality. Even if you are a Christian, although our great enemy is defeated, there is still an everyday battle to fight. There's still an everyday battle to fight. There's still a war that is working in us around us that is seeking to destroy our lives, and it's not going away, right? And that is the truth. Even though we are safe and secure under the protection of the king, we still have a battle that we are fighting. We're still fighting depression. We're still fighting lust. We're still fighting insecurities. We're still fighting our minds. We're still fighting our hearts. Right? We're still fighting brokenness in our families or brokenness in our community or brokenness that we're seeing around the world. We're still fighting several battles. Whatever your battles may be, it seems like these battles are not going away. And even though there's victory in Jesus, and we know that to be true, there's still a law that is active and we are constantly warring against. There's still a battle. There's still a tension that's not going away. 
And we have to live in that tension every single day. And if there's one thing I want you to walk away with today, there's one thing I want you to hear from me today, and that is our ultimate enemy is defeated, but there's still a battle that continues. But God has countered this battle with a great power for us to fight back and to win. And listen, not just to hide behind a cross, but to advance against the kingdom, the gates of hell. And the Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail. Not for us just to be Christians on the defense, but the, to be Christians victorious with the power to fight back. Now, you don't have to be defeated. You don't have to be on the defense. God has given you the power to actually fight back, to take back control, to take back control over our hearts, to take back control over our minds, to take back control over our families and our homes, the battles that we're seeing happening in our communities. We don't have to live in defeat. We could take back control and walk every day in victory. I want you to hear that and be encouraged by that. And I think this is what Esther chapter 9 is going to get at. And there's two parts to this chapter. The first part, verses 1 through 16, we're going to see the power we have to fight back and not just to be on the defense. We have power to fight back. And then the second part we're going to see in verses 16 to 32 is the key to our everyday victory is in remembering and celebrating the gospel. Remembering and celebrating the gospel in our lives every day will be the key to our everyday victory. All right, so let's look at the first part, the power to fight back, not just to be on the defense. In verse 1, it says, on the day when the Jews' enemy had hope, if you have a pen, highlighter, highlight that, underline that, had hope to overpower them, just the opposite happened. And that's that reversal. The opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them instead. And I want you to keep that in mind. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. Verse 2 in each of the king's province, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. And it's very important for us to see that the Jews are not trying to attack innocent people. They are fighting back. And not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. I want you to notice how in these two verses, how the author stressed the fact that the Jews were not the aggressor, right? The Jews were not the aggressor. They're not the one looking to fight, but the fight was brought to them, right? Haman's law went into effect that day, and now his supporters are launching their attack, but the king had given the Jewish people the right to defend themselves. And so in verse 1, the author tells us that their enemy had hope, had hope to overpower them. Their enemy actually had confidence. 
their enemy actually had eagerness. They had a plan. They were optimistic about this plan. They had a hope to overpower the Jews, right? I want to pause here for a second because I want you to see this. Do you realize that the enemy has a plan for your life? That the enemy has a plan for your life. Do you realize that the enemy has a hope for you? You know, the same way that we talk about like how we have hope for our lives, hope for success. We work on a plan and we have hope in those plans. We hope for a good marriage. We hope for the best job, right? We hope to raise good kids. We hope to be the best leaders and the best Christians in our community or at work. We hope to have the best future. But do you realize that in the same way the enemy hope that your marriage will fail or hope that you would pursue your best plan for your life and leave God out of it? Hope that you could care less about your community or your coworkers or what's happening around you or around the world. Hope that you would publicly fail as a leader or as a professing Christian. Hope that you would never, never see the great potential you have if you only fully surrender your life to Jesus. Like, do you realize that the enemy has his best plans for your life as well? Right? We often sit and think about the best plans for our lives, but sometimes we could be walking in the enemy's best plans for our lives and we don't even see it. And we don't even notice that. And he hopes that you never figure that out. The enemy has a hope for your life as well. The word hope here means to closely examine, to inspect, which means paying close attention to, which conveys the idea that the enemy is paying close attention to our lives And he is waiting for the day, closely waiting for his opportunity to move. And this is what this verse says, on this day, the enemy had hope. And I think what the author wants us to see here is that the enemy is very observant. And this enemy of our lives is very observant. And if he is very observant, then that means that we should be two of our lives, right? The enemy is very aware of the secrets of our hearts because he's closely watching. He's very aware of our brokenness. He's very aware of the places in our lives that we are not paying attention to or we're giving over to the Lord. He's very aware of the places where we are letting down our guards and he is studying us to figure out ways to exploit our weaknesses, right? And so he knows our weaknesses. And I think he knows our weaknesses better than us sometimes, right? So the thing is, most of us are probably very aware of our weaknesses, very aware of our struggles, and we're probably not ashamed to admit them, what our struggles and our weaknesses are, 
So the problem for most of us is not that we don't know what our weaknesses are or we are ashamed to talk about them, but the problem is we rather sit with them. We rather sit with them and not take aggressive action to address them or at least be as aggressive as the enemy because the enemy is very aggressive when he attacks because when he attacks, He's not only trying to hurt, but he's trying to annihilate. He's very aggressive. He's not only just trying to destroy you, but he's trying to destroy your family. He's trying to destroy everyone and everything around you. And this is why Jesus talks about how when we address sin in our lives, we need to be very aggressive. He talks about this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 through 30. Right? So he says, if your eye or your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. That's aggressive language. And then he says, it's better to remove it, to cut it off, than to let the whole body be cast to hell. Because listen, the enemy is not just after your eyes or your hands, the enemy is after your soul. The enemy is after making you ineffective for God's kingdom. He's not just after your mind, but he's after your joy. He's after your peace. He's after your fellowship with God. And so when Jesus says to cut it off, listen, that doesn't mean you literally go do it. Please don't go do that. Right? But what he means is we need to be very radical. We need to be very radical aggressive about addressing the struggles in our lives. And sometimes that seems a little too much, right? Getting rid of your iPhone or your Android to get a phone with no internet, if you're struggling with pornography, that may seem a little too radical. But that may be what you need to do to be aggressive Deleting social media, if your temptation is for man's approval and likes, maybe you need to delete it. That may seem too much or too radical, but that may be the drastic, aggressive action that you need to take. Deleting that number, stop texting them back, stop picking up the phone, end that relationship that may be the aggressive action that you need to take. That may seem too radical or too much. That's probably what you need to do. Seeking accountability and confessing our sin, bringing our sin into the light, into the open, that may seem too radical, that seemed too much. But listen, the battle to overcome your enemies The enemies in your life can't be fought by being cute or comfortable. It can't be fought by being comfortable. It's an ugly and messy battle that we need to be very aggressive. And it's a battle where we will have to take drastic measures that will hurt and probably cause great harm, or a great loss, probably make you feel very uncomfortable or make other people feel uncomfortable, probably leave you with some permanent scars, but you can't avoid the messiness. 
you can't avoid being uncomfortable. It's an aggressive battle. It's a very uncomfortable battle. And listen, it's very uncomfortable when you read verses 11 through 17, right? In verses 11 through 17, we see how aggressive Esther had to be. In verse 11, it says, On the day the number of the people killed in, in, in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king, the king said to Queen Esther, In the fortress of Susa, the Jews had killed and destroyed 500 men. That's a lot, right? 500 men, including Haman's 10th son. What have they done in the rest of the royal province? And then the king says, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. And listen to Esther's answer. If it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today. She says, let's run it back. Give me another day. But then not just that, she says, may the bodies of Haman, 10 sons, be hung on the gallows. And the king gave the orders for this to be done. So the law was announced in Susa and they hung the bodies of Haman's 10 son. This beautiful woman, Esther, wasn't being cute about her enemies. She wasn't being cute. 500 people were killed, including 10 of Haman's son. And not just that, but the way that she had the 10 sons publicly hanged. She was not concerned about criticism or being judged. She wasn't trying to maintain public appearance. Esther wanted to stand and fight and send a warning to her enemies that we're not playing games. She wasn't being cute. And she brought this battle into the open. She brought this battle into the open to bring fear to her enemies. And some of us need to bring our battles into the open just like this, to shame the enemy by no longer living in secret, to take a stand because we know that's the right thing to do, right? To ask for help because we can't fight this enemy alone. To shame the enemy by breaking our silence to help address issues that have been long been avoided. Or to shame the enemy by inspiring change, by making your personal battles open, exposing it publicly. You can inspire change and encourage others who are addressing those same challenges as well. And so you hear how Esther was aggressive, but then you think that would be enough. But then the king asked Esther, Esther, you've destroyed all these people. What more do you want? And then Esther says, give me more, <laughs> right? Give me more. And this king probably was thinking, this girl is crazy. Right, so she asked for another day. The next day, the Bible says in verse 15, the Jews in Susa assembled again on the 14th day and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. And I want you to mark that. 
because we're going to go back to it. Then verse 16, the rest of the Jews in the royal province assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. Then they killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize the plunder. You see this? The first day she killed, the Jews killed 500 people. Then the 10 sons of Haman. Then the next day, 300. And throughout the entire empire, 75,000. And this is very uncomfortable when you read about the number of people who were killed. Why so aggressive, Esther? Why so aggressive? Why so why, why not be merciful, right? Why so many people? But again, I want you to remember that these were the people who wanted to carry out Haman's law. These were the people who hated the Jews, who came to attack them, and the Jews fought back, right? But then again, why did Esther ask for the second day to continue fighting? And I think the reason why she asked for the second day is because she wanted a complete victory, over her enemy, not just a partial victory. She wanted to make sure that all of her enemies were completely destroyed. Everything in her life that would hinder her from living free and living out her purpose was completely out of the way so they would have no chance to creep back up. Total victory, complete victory, so that nothing would resurface for nothing to resurface. Listen, our battles need to be the same way, where our battles can't be these superficial battles, right? And we need to go deep. The goal is not just to just have these uh, superficial wins. The goal is not just to modify our behaviors. The goal is not just to stop looking at lustful images. The goal is not just deleting social media. The goal is not just to become better people or better husbands or better wives, right? The goal is not those superficial win. No, the goal is a transformation of the heart. The goal is a transformation of the mind. The goal is deeper than just the action because you can change the action. But if you don't change the heart, all of the action will creep back up. Right. Listen, you see, if the first day Esther stopped at 500 men and that was it and she didn't go deeper, the second day there would be 300. And if Esther didn't stop at that point or if she stopped at that point, we see how there was an army, 75,000 waiting to attack And I think this imagery is what we need to see because sometimes we need to stop trying to fight to maintain what just looks like, right, a win on the surface. But we need to go deeper. Don't be superficial about your fight. Don't be superficial about your fight. We need to go deep, deep down inside. Or those things will creep back up and overpower your life. And so, again, yes, you can have victories over 500. We see this. 
But we're not just talking about these small victories. We don't want these small victories. We want to wrestle the heart, go deep and attack the army, the heart. So just like Esther, we need to ask God to help us fight, not just superficially, but help us to fight in the innermost, right? To help us fight our hearts, to help us fight our mind, to help us fight our unbelief. Because this is where the root, right? This is where the root is that will keep the army from coming back up. And now notice, three times the author repeated the phrase, but they did not seize the plunder. In verses 10, verses 15, and verses 16. And so anytime when you see in the Bible something is repeated, we just need to pay attention and kind of pause, right? So three times they did not seize the plunder. The Jews were not fighting their enemies for personal gain. They're not fighting for greed. They were not fighting for material possession. They were only fighting to live. They were only fighting for freedom. Their victory wasn't tied to something to gain. It wasn't motivated by worldly benefits. It wasn't motivated by desires, worldly desires. But their desire was solely to fulfill the purpose of God. Like, regardless if they were treasures to be had or properties to be had, when they defeated their enemies, they didn't care about those things. They didn't want it. They only wanted peace. They only wanted life. Material rewards were not their motivation. Um, when I was in elementary school, and I don't know if you guys had that, um, we used to have an award called the Do the Right Thing Awards, right? And so in school, they used to give it once a, once a month to a student who did the right thing. And so one day, as a kid, I was walking around, and I saw $25 on the ground. You know, as a kid, you're like, yeah, I found money. You'd think normal kids will probably keep it, but I was that honest kid, and I found the money, and I turned it into the office. And so when I turned it into the office, they were shocked. They were like, oh, snap, like, you turned in this money? And so I got the award. So I got this nice certificate. I got a shirt. Um, the story about me finding this money went on the school newspaper, right? I mean, like, I, I was on the announcement for a month, and all these great rewards. I got a shirt, and then you know what? I got to keep the $25 because no one claimed it. And so I thought, huh, self, just keep doing the right thing. <laughs> and so whenever I would see things on the ground, right, I see a pencil, I see a book bag, I see a lunchbox. Maybe that person was standing right next to it. I don't know. I would turn it into the office because I was expecting to get an award and then also to keep it. That never happened again. I never got the award. And I said to myself, I am never going to do the right thing again because why am I wasting my time? And I think this is kind of like how we are, right? The Jews, the plunder was not their motivation to doing the right thing, to fighting. They're not fighting to gain blessing. They're not fighting to gain worldly treasures because the king of all kings, its kingdom was already their treasure, right? It's not about what we gain, we fight. We don't fight for 
God's favor. We already have it. We don't fight for blessing from God because he's already given us the greatest blessing, Jesus. Right? We don't fight for his favor or any of those things. We fight because we want to maintain our fellowship and our peace and our joy, walking with the king, the relationship with the king. We fight for that, right? It's not about what we gain that we fight for obedience or faithfulness. It's not about what we gain that we fight for sin. It's about enjoying the relationship that we already have with our treasure. And it has to be something more that you are determining to fight. There has to be something more that you're pursuing, that you're, that, that you're being motivated by. And it has to be for your joy. It has to be for the glory of the king who's on your side. And also, listen, knowing that the king was on their side gave the Jews confidence to keep fighting, right? And so it didn't matter who was against them or how great their opposition was. They knew the reversal would happen, that they would have victory. And this is what Romans chapter 8, verses 31 says. If God is for us, who can be against us? Not our struggles, because God supports and his presence provide strength to overcome our struggles. Who can be against us? Not our addiction, because God's power of grace breaks those chains and lead us to freedom. Who can be against us? Not our past, because God's forgiveness and redemption are at work in our lives to make us new. Who can be against us? And not our fears, because God's protection and promise is to be with us and not against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And so whatever the enemies are in our lives, whatever we are fighting today, God says in all of these things, listen, you are more than a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. And so this is why this leads us to remembering and celebrating the promise that we have in the gospel. This is why it's so important for us to remember the gospel, because one of the greatest hindrance to our victory is our forgetfulness, right? We have this tendency of forgetting the many ways that God has showed his faithfulness, how God has showed his grace, how God has brought us out of other battles. We have the tendency of forgetting who God is and how powerful we are in him. And this is why remembering and celebrating the gospel in our lives is the key to walking daily in victory. And so this is what we see in the second part of this chapter in verses 20 to 32, where this feast was obligated by the Jews after their victory to celebrate and to remember, not to forget their deliverance from their great enemy. Remembering the gospel Remembering God's deliverance from Haman. Every year, 
They had to remember and to celebrate God's faithfulness and deliverance and victory. And they were to tell people about it. And then they were, listen, they were to send gifts to the poor as a sign, right, of God's gift of salvation, right, as a sign of when they were desperately in need and God gave them this gift of life and fought their battle. And you know, this is what we do every Sunday when we come to church. We're remembering and celebrating the gospel. We're remembering and celebrating the great victory that we have. And this feast, when they gathered together, was a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do. And this is what Jesus is the fulfillment of this feast. Because Jesus is the one who will come and deliver us from our great enemy. When we were desperately in need, God gave us the gift of his son. We were poor in spirit and God gave us the gift of his son and he fought for us. And now every day we can remember and celebrate this victory and we can testify to the world of God's power. And this is what this feast is all about. There's so much about remembering the gospel, remembering God's salvation gives us strength to overcome, gives us joy over our present battles and give us hope for victory. Listen, if Jesus has conquered the Haman in your life, our ultimate enemy, Satan, was defeated on the cross once and for all, what makes you think that he can't conquer whatever you're facing now? That's light work. If Jesus rose from the dead, conquering the grave and demonstrating his authority over sin and death, what makes you think that victory is beyond your reach? When that same resurrected power lives inside of you, the same resurrection power who rose Christ from the dead is now at work in your life. What makes you think that that always has to overpower you. If we are saved by grace and not because of anything that we have done to earn, but solely because of God's work, why do we feel we need to work now? Why do we feel like we can't rest? Why do we feel like it's all up on us to do, to fight, to win? Why do we think that we can't rest and believe God is fighting for us, right? And this is not just your fight. And the reality is fight back doesn't mean we do. Fight back is resting. Fight back means trusting. Fight back means depending Fight back means being desperate. Fight back means being cling to Jesus. Fight back means to rest and not trust in your flesh, but trust in his power, to trust in his promises, to trust in his presence, right? And that is what it means to fight back every day. Every day we can rest and allow him to handle 
our battles. And listen, if Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, advocating for us as a high priest, constantly interceding for us in prayer, why do we feel he doesn't know our struggles and he won't give us what we need? He knows it. He's advocating. He's interceding. We're not alone. See, remembering the truth, remembering the promises in the gospel is the most powerful way we can fight back. It's the most powerful way that we can fight back against lies. It's the most powerful way that we can fight back against discouragement or temptation, the work of the enemy, through worship we remember, through reading God's word we remember, through prayer we remember, through our testimonies we remember that we are more than conquerors. Remember and celebrate the gospel, Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his exaltation at the right hand of Father gives us confidence, gives us strength, gives us assurance that there are no present battles right now in your life, no matter how challenging they are, that we can't fight back and overpower. We are more than conquerors. Remember and celebrate that in the gospel. And pray for us. Father, thank you for the gospel. We are poor in spirit, poor, and that you showered us and lavished on us the great blessing of Jesus as our gift of salvation. Who saw our great need to wrestle against our great enemies. Who risked his own life to intercede for us and to give us this new law to fight back and that we're not defenseless. To give us power to stand and to give us power to overcome and that we do not have to run, but you have given us the power that the gates of hell will not prevail. And so help us to fight this week, to fight our minds, to fight our hearts, to fight for our families, to fight for our marriage, to take back control, and that we don't have to live in defeat. We can be Christians who are walking every single day in victory because you have given us the victory. Victory is in you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.